why would these universities want to do this? Why would an individual professor want to do this? Who would want to pay for this and why? Like you could really think about it from this incredibly open-ended lens. And it's very rare to join something that is that scale, but also that small. Um, so it was really amazing. I was there for four years, saw it through a lot of growth. Friend, I had a lot of different positions there over time. And without a doubt, you know, the smartest group of people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. It was like a magnet for people who are idealistic and strategic. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Tiffany Snyder, and I'm here with my co-host, Brad Garner, who you don't know, but he's already laughing because he has a joke. Brad? It is a wonderful joke, too. Here we go. Okay, what was the spider doing on the computer? Crawling the web. Searching the web. Yeah, I don't know. Making a website. Mm. Making a website. Uh, 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 uh. (laughs) Thanks for including me in your podcast. Um, (laughs) Well, uh, I thought it was going to have some kind of correlation with our guest today. I guess websites, technology, we're very loosely connected here. We're we're trying, we're stretching. Today, we are welcomed by Alex Sarlin. Alex Sarlin is the CEO and founder of EdTech Insiders and a senior advisor for product for Cambier Education, where he supports the EdTech studio. Alex is a 15-year veteran of the EdTech industry as a product manager and learning engineer at large tech EdTech companies, including 2U, Scholastic, and the Zuckerberg Initiative, and startups, including Coursera, Skillshare, Credly, and Newton. He holds a Master's of Instructional Design from Columbia University and an Executive MBA from Quantic School of Technology. Please join us in welcoming to the Digital to Learn podcast, Alex Sarlin. Welcome, Alex. It's great to be here with you both, Brad and Tiffany. <laughs> Alex included, is a pro. He included me in that. He did include <laughs> he you. Included yeah. me. <laughs> Alex is a pro at this. He has his own podcast, as was mentioned in his bio. So really, he's actually here kind of as secret Santa, seeing how we're doing things and critiquing our process. No. We're going to have a lot of fun today talking to Alex about his experiences with guests and topics that he hears about, that he studies and is involved with. And so it's going to be a lot of fun. Per usual, we start with getting to know you questions and we do some online digging on our guests beforehand. And he may have thought this was random. It wasn't so random. Somewhere on the web, I did read that Alex has done karaoke a time or two. Yeah. So it's karaoke night. What song are you singing? Oh, I really do love karaoke. I've done it for many years (laughs) in many different places. I mean, the classic karaoke song is Don't Stop Believin'. By Journey. Yeah. And I have actually done that. I've done that in live karaoke, believe it or not. I've wow. actually done that in front oh, of wow. an audience. I did Pump It Up by Elvis Costello once in front of people. Nice. Oh, I love karaoke. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Yeah, I like this, this guy already. I know. <laughs> okay, next question. What's the next book on your reading list? Great question. So I am just getting into a book called The Great Upheaval by Arthur Levine, who is the former head of Teachers College. It's really about the future of higher ed and how it's being changed 
very quickly through technology, which is, of course, right up my alley. It's something we talk about almost every week on Antic Insiders, and uh, it's a really interesting book. goes through the whole history of the university system and how it's being upended right now. Sounds like the author would be a good fit for both your podcast and ours, too. No question. Yeah. Yeah. If you could interview one guest for the EdTech Insiders newsletter or podcast, who would you interview and why? And please tell me you've been turned down a time or two because not <laughs> often, but every once in a while, we do get turned down by some of our dream guests. So who would you? Or, or a no, just a simply no response whatsoever. No response. That's what it is. <laughs> right. That's what it is, really. Don't take it personally. Yeah, we've we've definitely been turned down. But I am happy to report that my dream guest, we are actually in the midst of booking them right now. I'm so excited about it. Somebody I followed for a long time in the ed tech space is Ryan Craig. He's a, a chief partners and university ventures. He's an investor, but he mm. writes extensively about the future of education. And I've read his stuff. He's written two books. I've read them voraciously and I read his newsletter every week. I reached out to him about six months ago to ask him to be on the podcast. And he wow. he sent me a, one of his business partners who was absolutely amazing, but it looks like he's going to come on now to talk, you know, in a few weeks, just to talk about his new stuff. He writes a newsletter called The Gap Letter. If any of your listeners have not heard of it, I couldn't recommend it highly enough. And he's just a very wise and forward-thinking voice, especially in career readiness and education. Oh, wow. So Tiffany, make a note when we're done here, we're going to scoop that guest. <laughs> oh, yeah. You were recommended by Alex. <laughs> Go for it. No, yeah, sorry. Nice sorry guy. he couldn't make it with you, but he said, why don't yeah. you do friend Tiffany? <laughs> We've merged podcasts. And <laughs> right. Oh, no, that's amazing. Congratulations. Yeah. I know that feeling of when they do reply and they say yes, yeah. and you're thinking, yes, this is the message that we, I want we to also want to get here. Sal Khan on the podcast. Obviously, that would be an incredible, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, incredible guest, but it hasn't happened yet. But hopefully over time, he's a, he's a really nice guy and a very, very good speaker. And that would be a terrific guest. So that's our reach guest. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Tiffany, do you think there's any chance in the world that we could get Alex Sarlin to come on our podcast? <laughs> Well, I tried. I tried. He did forward me to his business partner and said I needed to wait six months, but here he is. Uh, <laughs> okay, let's get serious. You have extensive experience in educational technology, product and learning design from thought leadership to investments to boost on the ground development. What's been your most energizing position to date? That's a really good question. So my background is that I came into EdTech in about 2008, right at the beginning of sort of the era where people were starting to really invest in EdTech companies, try to sort of treat them more like startups than traditional software companies. And my I would say pretty much without a doubt, my most energizing position was working with Coursera. And the reason for that is that I joined Coursera very early in their development. If I remember correctly, I think I was within the first 50 to 100 employees, maybe even been, you know, 40 to 50. And it was a very small startup. They had this outsized footprint in the media. People, New York Times had just called it the year of the MOOC. They were everywhere. But you actually went to the office and it was this tiny group of people. Most of them were fresh out of college. And it was just this like, they were fresh out of Stanford for the most part. And it was a really, really, really smart group of people just trying to do something. They didn't really even have a business model yet. It was just like, let's see if we can get 
the elite universities of the world online. Nobody had ever really done it since Michael Crow tried Fathom, you know, 15 years before. And it was so energizing because it was sort of from first principles. It was like, why would these universities want to do this? Why would an individual professor want to do this? Who would want to pay for this and why? Like you could really think about it from this incredibly open-ended lens. And it's very rare to join something that is that scale, but also that small. Um, so it was really amazing. I was there for four years, saw it through a lot of growth. Friend, I had a lot of different positions there over time. And without a doubt, you know, the smartest group of people I've ever had the opportunity to work with. It was like a magnet for people who are idealistic and strategic and a lot of AI folks there too. I mean, half the company now works at Google Brain. So it was really, really, really inspiring and energizing. And, you know, they just crossed 125 million users at Coursera. So impactful, you know, beyond anything I've done as well. Wow. What was the recruitment process like to go to that first institution or the sixth and say, hey, we're doing this? <laughs> it's a great question. So Daphne Kohler and, and Andrew Ang, the founders of, of uh, Coursera, but especially Daphne, really did something very unusual and special at the beginning of Coursera. They they had, uh, you know, if we remember, flashback to 2012, they had just put a few AI courses online and seen this outsized, almost like amazing response. Hundreds of thousands of people sign up. And they were both professors. They said, you know, we're going to try to start this. We're going to try to start it as a private company, which was not expected. It was not what edX was doing at, at MIT. And we're going to go to four landmark universities for our four like core partners. And they, basically, she went to all of them and said, we're going to try this amazing experiment. We're going to see what can happen. What would happen if we actually band together and put things online and make it global? And, you know, there's there was no business model at the time, or I, they might disagree with that. But I felt like there was no <laughs> business model at the time. And she basically convinced these four really, really prestigious schools to sort of um, trust them and put some courses online and put out the call to their internal professors and make it happen. And I don't think anybody from inside the academic community had approached them with this before. Again, since Michael Crow, who was a he was the president of Columbia when he did it years ago. But these two were Stanford professors. They were relatively young professors, very well respected in their fields, who had just, you know, stepped away from teaching to do this. And I think the moment was right. And the community was ready to try this thing that they had always been very, you know, wary of. And it was just this happened before I got there, just to be clear. I got there and this was the story, the sort of origin story that they would tell. But once schools like that were on board, it became a little bit of a snowball effect because you could yeah. go to other schools and they'd say, oh, wait, you know, Stanford and Penn are doing this? Well, sure, sign us up. And then it became this arms race with edX. It was like, who's going to get Dartmouth? Who's going to get University of Texas? It was just a really thrilling time because a year before, none of these schools were trying to go online and they were very wow. skeptical of online learning and online learning and online degrees in particular had a really bad reputation because of the for-profits and all of the things that had happened there. And they had been doing all sorts of strange marketing practices. It just was really a crazy moment. And I was felt very fortunate to be in the room when that really took off. Has that story been captured anywhere in like a book or a documentary? It would be a great one. It would be. There's an employee there named Eli Bildner, brilliant guy. And he. I remember him asking out of all hands, 
if in the book of Coursera, what chapter would you call this next step? That was like his question to the CEOs. It was really prescient and interesting. No, I don't think there is a book. I do think there is, there've been some people who've done some really good podcasts actually about, but for the most part, it's, I, you know, as an ed tech nerd, like all of you, I think it's a very interesting story. I'm not entirely yeah. sure if it would sell yeah. as a book, but I hope it would. It was really, really interesting. And I think a transformative moment in ed tech. There've been a few of those, but I think this was one of them. So I'm assuming Stanford was their first partner. Yeah. Okay. And going out and talking to other schools with that in your back pocket makes the job relatively easy. It definitely does. But, you know, at the same time, schools, you know, universities can be pretty hesitant to change. Um, you know, it's not, they're, really? they're not always. I don't think so. Oh, I don't know. Oh, my experience. <laughs> so, yeah, I, there definitely was still some convincing to do there. What a brilliant strategy that is. Yeah. I mean, looking back on it now, if it failed, we'd go, oh, that's really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> There's a fantastic book called Unlocking the Gates about the history of basically trying to democratize and popularize elite higher ed. People have tried it for many generations. And there was the MIT open courseware movement, for example, or there's just a few different moments when this has been tried. And it was really... Like you said, a lot of these attempts did not go anywhere. They just didn't take off. But the combination of it being a media darling, people were talking about it all the time that year, coming from multiple super prestigious brand name universities. It also was about AI. You know, it started with the the Andrang's artificial intelligence class and Daphne Kohler's probabilistic graphical models class, which are very advanced topics. And that I think gave it a sheen of interest too, because it wasn't like we're going to put introduction to psychology online, even though that is obviously exciting. It's just a different story. You know, the timing was probably just right for what they did. I think so. Yeah, it was very energizing, a really exciting time. And you know, I've had a lot of roles that have been very energizing, just to be clear. I've loved working with startups. I've loved working with bigger companies. We have done some really awesome work for K2 students. I put out a product with Scholastic. We worked with an amazing vendor at the time to do all sorts of beautiful animations and videos. And they did all this character building. And the, the head of that company was called Cloud Kid. And the head of that company, he's now the head of interactive at Netflix. And he has wow. he's like an incredibly creative guy. And I got the chance to work with him on this project, you know, much earlier in his career. And that was just an amazing experience as well. I feel like I've been very lucky. I sometimes call myself like the Forrest Gump of EdTech. I've sort of like stumbled <laughs> into a lot of situations that. that are really... Yeah, kind of exciting, arguably historic. When I was at the Chen Zuckerberg Initiative, I was there during the Cambridge Analytica scandal, like literally the days when Zuckerberg was was uh, in front of Congress testifying. <laughs> I was working there and that's their philanthropy arm. But they were coming in and they wanted everybody to know what was going on. They didn't want it to feel like some kind of rumor thing. So they were coming out saying, this is what we said. This is what this is our belief about it. This is how, why this happened. And I mean, being in a room like that, it felt like being part of history as well. That was sort of like one of the big turning points where social media went from being a darling to a little bit of a something people were really afraid of. And I think that's continued to this day. Well, those elements of your career probably do have some luck involved, but I'm guessing oh, a yeah. much heavier dose of skill and talent. That's 
Kind. <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> Go read the rec for everyone listening. If you haven't read the recommendations on LinkedIn. I loved reading what people had to say about working with you, Alex, and all of your former positions. Just so encouraging, so affirming. And yet here we are talking about energizing experiences, winning experiences. You have been in this space of startups and innovation. And I still think back in Indianapolis, there was a startup event called Fail Fest. And it, mm. it had left such an impression on me where different people would take turns going up and standing on a stage and describing a recent failure. And then everyone oh, would nice. clap and applaud for them. Great. And so that came to mind when I was reading about your history. I thought, okay, what are those moments or what's a project even that you can remember that failed? And what did you take away from that? Yeah, well, I, I think anybody who's been in any field, but especially education and ed tech for a while has no shortage of, of failure stories. I mean, what comes to mind when I think of failure, sort of a moment that I feel like the, the direction that I was pulling for just didn't manifest and it didn't work out quite the way I would have wanted it to work out was actually sort of part of this Chen Zuckerberg work. Chen Zuckerberg Initiative is an incredible place. They unbelievably well funded incredibly smart people. They work in science and education and policy. At the same time, you know, because this was happening, because they were putting this money in during a time when Facebook itself was having these incredible PR issues, it was really into the spotlight in a, in a very strange way. And I was the product manager for an area of the Summit Learning Platform, which is a, a free curriculum and online platform that is offered to schools around the country that includes project-based learning. So it's a really well-organized and well-thought-through product. But I was on an area of the product they called focus areas, which was basically the asynchronous, self-paced, mm. the pieces where students were going to learn structured knowledge on their own and be assessed on it. And I kept noticing that a lot of these focus areas were made using public content. They were made using external websites. It's almost like a web quest. They were from all over the internet. And that was a good idea in terms of being able to make it very quickly and inexpensively, <laughs> but it was a very dangerous idea in terms of safety, PR, reliability. It was just not the right strategy. And they all meant incredibly well. Nobody was doing this for any bad purposes, but it was just a strategy that was a difficult thing to achieve because you didn't have control over your own content. If somebody took down the site or changed the content on a site, yeah. you were beaming it into public schools under your own brand. Mm. And partially because of the Facebook stuff happening at that time, my memory was I was constantly trying to sound a little bit of an alarm and say, we are putting ourselves in some major PR risk and maybe even legal risk um, by relying on these third-party sites. Yeah. We This is a very well-funded charity. Maybe there's an opportunity to license with a reliable textbook company or to get a more of a walled garden approach. And, you know, at the time, I think the pedagogy of the Summit Learning Platform was really focused much more highly on the projects for all the right reasons. They were like, the projects are where the real deeper learning happens. Let's do the project. So they were consistently putting more effort and energy and thought into the project-based learning side of the curriculum. And I was doing the other side, which was the self-paced. And I just couldn't, for, for whatever reason, I couldn't get enough attention paid to this. And what started to happen is bad headlines. They, they started to be 
parents started getting very nervous about Facebook being involved in their kids' schooling. And there were some real people really out to bring this down, like attacking it, really suspecting it of very nefarious ideas of data collection of things that nobody there was trying to do, but people were really nervous about it. It's sort of understandable just because it was new. And they would go through the curriculum and comb through each resource. And, and if they found anything, any word, any phrase in any of these sites, they would, you know, try to make it into a PR mess. And we did, you know, anything we could, we made these sophisticated scrapers that would go through every site and make sure that they were constantly up for one thing. They weren't coming down. It would search them for language, certain phrases and language. Like we were doing our best to sort of work around this need, yeah. but it just didn't, <laughs> we couldn't do it enough. And, you know, at the end of the day, the reason I considered a failure, even though, you know, it didn't shut down or anything, is that when the pandemic hit, when COVID came down, this could have been an incredibly, uh, this product could have been in exactly the right place. It had fourth through 12th grade curriculum in English, math, science, and history. The whole thing. It had eight years of curriculum in four core subjects. All wow. online, all accessible, self-paced, designed for students with a really good user interface designed for as little as fourth graders that we knew it worked for fourth graders and, and assessments. And the fact that COVID came down, and I don't know about you, but I didn't see anything about Summit Learning Platform during the pandemic. I don't think they grew. I don't think they, I'm saying they, but I, I'm going to include myself in this. I think that we, as a group, were under such scrutiny and fire, I think there was not enough fear, frankly, there was not enough fear of using this technique that, you know, worked in a much smaller, more casual world, which is the Summit Charter School Network. But putting this out to schools all over the country, it was just really dangerous. And we had some some bad headlines and a lot of fear and and panic. And I consider that sort of one of several failures in my career, but we always learn from failures. As you're saying, Tiffany, it's really good to be yeah. supportive. And I learned a lot from that experience. Well, that's the key to, to learn from it and to, to pick yeah. yourself up and move on to the next thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think we can all in education and when it comes to sourcing content, understand where you, where the group was coming from and kind of wrestle with. I have to admit, I'm still waiting for that first failure experience. I just haven't had that. <laughs> I've heard people talk about it, but I just don't, I don't, I don't know how to relate to it. Totally. We did forget to clap. I told you in my in my vision oh, yeah. for this, we're supposed to just like, yeah. Big I mean, applause. you get people Big applaud applause. at you in karaoke, Alex, but this is the time <laughs> we're getting applause for different reasons. Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever gotten applause in karaoke. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I appreciate it. Well, it's that time in the show where we gotta hit pause, but we'll be back next week with part two with Alex Sarlin. So join us then. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. Always keep learning.